Welcome back to Aliyah Yomi. Today we're going to be learning Shoftim Sheni, the second Aliyah in Parsha Shoftim. It is a short Aliyah, but it has an incredible amount of depth. Our Aliyah is talking about the king in Israel. Our Aliyah runs for seven psukim from Perek Yudzain, Yudalad to Chav. Let's take a look at this and try to understand it in greater de- detail. The basic summary of the Aliyah is as follows, that Hashem tells the nation of Israel, that when Israel will come to the land of Israel they and they request a king, then they will anoint a king like all the other nations and they will make him their leader. He will be chosen from, uh, by Hashem from among your brethren and not from a person who is foreign to Israel, but he must uh, limit certain things in his life. He must limit the amount of horses so as not to bring the people back to Egypt. In his personal life, he should not have too many wives in the days of Polygamy, lest he be misguided by them. He should not amass too much wealth in gold and silver. He needs to write a Mishnah Torah, a book of the Torah, or perhaps two books of the Torah, as Rashi understands it to be. And it needs to be with him all his life, to be read by him, so that he should fear Hashem and fall into compliance with all the mitzvahs, all the commandments of Hashem. Also, that his heart should not be haughty, or he should not pervert the Torah. This is in order that he should have longevity, and he and his children will reign upon the throne. So it's a very fascinating aliyah which describes the king. We're going to dis- discuss a few basic points and the first one is the question which is a, a very important question to understand this aliyah and that is, is having a king a commandment? Is the Torah telling us this is, an ob- this is a prescription, you need to have a king? So this happens to be a, ma- a matter of debate. The Gomorrah in the Sanhedrin Daf Chofum Abayz tells us that Rabbi Yehuda says that there were three commandments that the nation of Israel had when they la- entered the land of Israel. The first is to establish a king, to destroy Amalek, and to build the base of Mikdash. So he sees it as a mitzvah, as a commandment. However, Rabbi Nehurai disagrees and he says, this parasha was only a response to the Taroimis, to the complaints of Israel, and therefore it's to be read as a prophecy rather than a command. Um, it's interesting that um, the way that the Orachim HaKadosh looks at this is based on this Gomorrah, is that therefore there's a certain element of flexibility in this parasha, um, on the one hand, it does say, you should surely place a king. On the other hand, it's responding to them saying, you will say that you want a king. And that, that, that ambiguity is, in a certain sense, the latent potential as to the two courses in history which can be plotted based on the actions of Israel. So it's really up to how Israel will decide this will run as well. In the Mephoshim, we see this as well. So as an example, the, the Ibn Ezra says, Rishus, this is not a command, this is a possibility. Whereas the Rambam in Hilchus Melachim, Paskins like Rabbi Yehuda, that this is one of the three mitzvahs that a person has when they're coming into the land of Israel. Most interestingly enough in this whole particular episode is the Abar Benel. The Abar Benel is commentary to Shmuel Aleph Perek Ches. That makes a, has a very long essay on this topic and he says that he, he describes the Abar Benel having lived through the Spanish um, Inquisition and expulsion and having tried to negotiate it with Ferdinand and Isabella. Um, unsuccessfully he leaves to Vienna and he describes how democracy is a much more efficient system than monarchy. He describes that one of the failings of monarchy is that you're a person who has uh, punitive control over society with no checks and balances. There's no one who can call foul when they do wrong things because it's a lifetime job. And he describes all the the, the cities and city-states that he, he had come across, Vienna, um, he describes Florence, Svila Cholarazos, he calls it the, the most beautiful of all lands, and all these places um, where, where he is able to, um, uh, he, he describes Geneva, 
um, and he says they're all successful because their leaders have terms. And that means to say if they do something wrong, they're going to be voted out. And he says that that's a more of a successful system that the Torah was talking at the time to the response of what the people wanted of that system of government at that time. It's interesting that there's a more balanced approach, and that's what the Nitziv of Velazhin points out. And that is, is that he, um, he says perhaps the difference in opinion of Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Nulurai and the Mepharshim later on in history is a reflection of the fact that no system of government is going to work for all people. There are certain people who require dictatorships. There are certain nations that require strong leaders. Other societies require more democratic systems where there is a degree of um, of flexibility and immu- and uh, and and uh, called people-based people-based governments. And so what the Torah is saying is that dependent on what it is that you need at that time, Valmarta, if you're going to ask for a system of monarchy, then you can place, a, you can make a king. But that's not saying that this is the only system of government. This is the system of government that you see fit at that time, which is why it's dependent on your request for it, which is something which is certainly true when it comes to understanding and viewing history as a whole. Another question we can ask is, what went wrong in Sefer Shmuel? If you remember, in Sefer Shmuel, when Shmuel and Avi was getting older, his children weren't living up to the same level of, of leadership that he was. The people turned to him to, to Shmuel and say almost word for word, these psukim in Araliyah, which are, um, we want a king like all other, uh, the other nations to judge us. What's, what was wrong? Shmuel got very upset, but surely they were just making the request as enumerated in the Pasuk. So there's a lot of Mephorshim that discuss this. Rashi says, that they wanted to do this just for the sake of assimilation. They wanted it to be there just to be like other nations. The Radak suggests that the, 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 this was a, an expression of complaint rather than it was a system of asking for the mitzvah. Meaning to say, yes, it's true the Torah said this could be a mitzvah or at least a rishus, a, a permission, a neutral um, commandment. But at the same time, um, this they were doing it because they were upset. They just didn't like the economy. They didn't like the security. And therefore, they were doing this as their own Violation. The, Rashba, the Rambam as um, uh, Ramban Nachmanides in two places in the Torah in Bereshis um, and in Devarim as well describe that this is this, this was incorrect because it's the wrong timing. Here you have Shmuel, one of the greatest leaders of Israel, you know, with them having dazzling military successes under him against the Philistines, and now suddenly they reject him. That's just really not an appropriate timing. The Malbim says a similar thing, and if you carry on reading and say for Shmuel, one of the miracles he performs for them is that on a very um, cloudless blue sky day, suddenly a torrential downpour ensues after Shmuel announces it. So why is that this, the, the metaphor that he uses? So the Malbim explains, is are kings good or are kings bad? And the answer is, is it depends. It really depends when you ask them. And Shmuel felt this was the inappropriate time to ask for it, certainly while he was still their leader. He was the Shafate at the time. This was essentially a rejection, a slap in the face to Shmuel himself. And therefore, that's the same idea as rain. Is rain good or is rain bad? Well, rain can have the capacity of being very, very good, and it can also have the capacity of being very, very destructive. It depends on the timing. And that's why he used that as the mashal, as the example as well. One last question which is worthwhile contemplating, and that is, is what is the difference of the jurisdiction of the king and the judge? When it comes to their power. So the Drashas Haran, Rabbeinu Nisim has a set of Drashas which are accumulated in a book called Drashas Haran. The 11th Drasha actually is primarily focused on Parashas Shoftim. Our Parsha, so he considers in that section of the essay on the Drasha on this particular idea and he asks a basic question. The, the mission in Makos at the end of the first parak tells us that a, a Bastin which killed once every seven years or potentially even 70 years was called a murderous Bastin. 
So he asks the question, well, if there's no deterrence, because there could always be a technicality which could uh, exempt the killers from doing from being persecuted, prosecuted um, and executed, then there's not going to be any deterrence. So why would people avoid doing bad things? So he explains that there are two realms of judgment in, in the nation of Israel. One was the, the, the Sanhedrin, the, the Shoftim, the Dayanim, and then there was the king. And the, when it came to the Dayanim and the Shoftim and the Sanhedrin, their role would be to exact what's called MS Lamitai, Hashem's justice in this world, to kill, be able to kill a person, you a human being, to kill another person. This can only be done under very specific conditions. There has to be two witnesses, which is Xeras Akasov, that Hashem made. There cannot be circumstantial evidence. There has to be a warning within Toch Kedai Dibble within a very short amount of time, and the person has to say, and reject the warning. That's to express real judgment in this world. That's um, the, the judgment of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. That's what a Sanhedrin is, is tasked with. However, when it comes to a king, a king has the, the ability and the jurisdiction on Shem Shalom Adin. He can, he can, let's say it's a smoking gun. So you have circumstantial evidence. There weren't witnesses. In this case, the, the Sanhedrin cannot prosecute such a person. Well, the king can go and kill that person without the witnesses based on circumstantial evidence because the king is there to make society be in check. That's his responsibility. So he is above and beyond what the Sanhedrin will do, which is fascinating why it is that Aliyah number one deals with the Sanhedrin and Aliyah number two deals with the king. These are two systems of justice there to keep society in check. This is perhaps the way to close our second Aliyah. Have a wonderful and meaningful day.